0: My new book is now available. It's called Peace Over Pain: How to Eliminate Chronic Pain and or Chronic Illness so you can break free from the medical monopoly. If you want it instantly, you can get the ebook and audiobook together as a package on peaceoverpain.com. And of course, the paperback is available on Amazon, right now. Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. Are open relationships possible? Welcome to episode number 100 and 48. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jolie Hamilton. She's a research psychologist, relationship coach, and best-selling author. Before we get into this conversation, I want to ask you to sit down and relax and take in this very interesting recording. Let's begin. Dr. Jolie, hello.
1: Hello, hello. It's nice to be talking to you, Dr. Kevin. (laughs) Love these doctors, right?
0: (laughs) That's right. So what's the gist behind an open relationship?
1: Mm, I think most people would if they're not familiar with an open relationship would probably say that the gist is about getting laid more. <laughs> That's not it though. The real gist is about being authentically responsive to your desire and being utterly honest with everyone involved about how you're going to act on that desire.
0: I mean, how many people are doing these open relationships? Because, you know, it's something I've always, I've always, I don't know if it's just, I don't know if I'm a pig or (laughs) it's natural. I don't know, but I've always had that in the back of my mind of why do I have to be a hundred percent with this person 24 hours a day? Why can't there be a little more if we both agree on it? Is that basically what an open relationship is?
1: Yeah. So, so let's first address your first question that, um, the numbers that we have are never going to be perfect because a lot of people will not be able to talk about um, non-monogamy and open relating until our culture kind of catches up with the curve. But what we do have for numbers tells us about 5% of people are practicing some form of consensual negotiated non-monogamy at any one time, in that's like North American numbers. And about 20% of people have tried it at some point. So that's about the same number of people as who have cats or play musical instruments. Okay. And um, in a recent national study, uh, millennials showed about 33 to 40% of them were interested or open to open relating. So everybody knows somebody who's at least interested.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) It is normal. You're normal for having considered it, for having it percolate up. And that desire to have your have your needs met, have your wants met by more than one person, yeah, it's completely natural that that would happen. Now, that doesn't mean you have to act on it. You know, I'm a fan of people selecting the relationship structure that works for them. If monogamy feels good to you and it continues to feel good to you and you feel held and nourished in that, great but where I think we could all as a culture really level up is by understanding that there are more options and some of those other options in the open relating world will fit some people much better and will result actually in a healthier overall society and a healthier, more honest set of relationships if we can just have the conversations.
0: Because I think
1: we can all agree that cheating is not where it's at.
0: (laughs) No, because at the end of the day, that's lying.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And so that's against moral code, regardless, no matter how you look at it. Exactly. But if you're communicating, right. And it's like, I, you know, I can do this and you can do that. And we're on the same page. I don't see why it wouldn't work.
1: Right. So, and that's where a lot of people often, um, they imagine that it will be a lot harder To be in an open relationship but really what it is is are you in a conscious and communicative relationship if you are then the number of people you choose to interact with intimately whether that's sexual intimacy emotional intimacy financial intimacy um child rearing intimacy the number of people isn't the key to whether you do this well the key to whether you do this well is are you in touch with what you actually want and are you acting in integrity throughout Your relationships throughout all of your relationships and a lot of us struggle to stay in integrity and it can be even more of a struggle if we're swimming upstream if we're doing something that's a little outside what was expected of us Mm -hmm. and that's where we have the big opportunity to not only consider whether we maybe want open relating but can we just support people honestly consciously exploring relationship structures around us without judgment as long as they're doing it in integrity.
0: Well, another thing that we're seeing a lot of over the last two, three, four years is the polynamorous movement. And that from what I see typically is one one dude and two women. That's what I've been seeing. Is that the norm for that movement?
1: Okay, so great question because polyamory, so it simply means many loves and it's a frisky conglomeration of latin and greek that bothers some people but polyamory many loves um this is not a new concept but it is the way that um the dominant white culture started talking about multiple loving relationships at the same time it's how we started talking about it's the word that was coined to say hey this is what this is but cultures throughout all history many, many cultures have had some kind of multiple relationship structure. So um, is it one thing? Is it one guy, one dude, and a couple of women? It might be. Is it always? Absolutely not. Hmm. One of the things that we will see, though, is that much of what is crafted for us to consume, in other words, the TV shows, the movies, the songs, all of that, they're crafted for still the white, cisgender, heterosexual male gaze so the the images that we get are often tailored to hey what's going to what's going to meet that general gaze and if you just look at porn you'll see that a very common fantasy is for a dude to have access to more than one woman simultaneously and so it suits the imagination but i know in my own life yeah sometimes that's the case but Is it always? Definitely not. There are so many ways to do this, including lots and lots and lots of queer relationships. You know, um, like gay male culture in the 70s and 80s and 90s and up through the aughts, it's incredibly common to have multiple relationships. So this really isn't about that one guy, two girls picture, but that might be the only picture you see unless you really allow yourself to look more deeply
0: there was this gentleman I ran into on YouTube some years ago. I forgot his name. He was, you know, a social media celebrity, I guess you can say. And he, he had, I want to say like five women and they all, and he had money. Yep. And, and so he had them all like on the same street or nearby in the same town and they all had houses; they were all taken care of, and they all knew about each other. Mm-hmm. And he would just take turns going. But it was it was nothing piggish about it. It was he was it was mature, and it was he. You know, this week I spend with this woman, and they, and they all had kids.
1: So what you're describing is much closer to the polygamous lifestyle. Now, these people, everyone gets to choose their own labels. So I don't want, I don't know this particular person, but if you think about the TV show, Big Love, um, it's that image of like that one man who's going to provide still in a very sort of mononormative way, provide a household, a child rearing situation, right? In a very, like in these little capsules, and then he's going to move between them. In actuality, most polyamorous situations are much more um, custom crafted, custom designed, much more um, about trying to figure out what's a good fit for everyone. And there are very few people with the resources to run five, you know, very prototypical American dream, I have great big air quotes for that, American Mm -hmm. dream household. Most people are actually going to be moving in a direction to craft something that lies outside of that my own first um polyamorous triad was um was three people three adults all raising children in a house together um it didn't end well that one didn't go well so for me i don't live with other partners now i have one partner i live with and i have i work with lots of people who have various arrangements sometimes there are multiple adults living together sometimes they all maintain separate domains sometimes there are people who are what they call solo polyamorous those people they consider their primary relationship to be with themselves. And so they don't choose to have other cohabitations. I like
0: that, I like that. They're like,
1: no to cohabitation, no to financial sharing, nope, not doing that. But
0: I've often said so many times in conversation with people that the hardest thing about relationships or the hardest thing with human relationships in general is living together. Yes, yep. For, yeah. forget, forget date night, forget sex, forget all that. It's just sharing a toilet yep. and sharing
1: a kitchen.
0: That is the challenge.
1: It is, it is. And when people grow up, we're presented with one image of what it means. to so you go out and you date and you might date a whole bunch of people at once or you might date one at a time, but we date and then we get on that relationship escalator. And that term was coined recently, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of the person who coined it, but the relationship escalator, the idea of it is just that there's one way the trajectory has to be ever escalating toward cohabitation, marriage, child rearing. And you might select out of the child rearing, and you might even select out of the marriage, but rarely does someone really take the stance that, oh, you know what, actually, we can be deeply committed to each other, and we don't have to cohabitate. We actually don't have to. And usually when people do, they get asked constantly, but when are you going to make it serious? When are you going to take it to the next level?
0: Well, I have a spiritual mentor who said that he's always had partners throughout his life, but he said he never shared a room. Yeah. He, He let them know off the bat, I want my own room.
1: Completely legitimate choice. But a lot of people feel like they can't make that choice or if they do, they need to justify it somehow. Shouldn't we all be choosing the relational pattern that actually works for us instead of trying to shoehorn into something?
0: But it, everything that we're talking about is so against the norm. It's so right. witchcrafty in the sense of people are like, no, ah, that's crazy. And so how does someone go out there and date and find someone who has the same, belief system or ideals.
1: Yeah so the number one thing and this is what I, I ask people to do first is before you decide to date openly, get to know yourself and start really imagining what is it that you actually want because I heard you with this absolute clarity I don't want to live with someone good you know that because the absolute most imperative piece of finding people who align with you is being able to communicate what you actually want, what you're available for. So if you get onto a dating app and you pretend like you're just down for anything and it's all all gonna work for you, you are not going to find good matches. You gotta say what you're available for upfront. Mm. I date, I'm on apps, my husband's on apps. It's not that hard if you're very honest from the get-go. But most people are gonna struggle with being truly honest if they feel like they have to hide parts of themselves in order to fit into that norm. So part of why I talk about this openly is because you're not alone. You're not alone. You know, 5%, 20%, these are not small numbers. You're not alone. There really are people out there doing this happily.
0: Yes, there are. I have a, I have a buddy who I, I, I know through a friend that he just, yeah, he just got into a, a polynamorous situation like maybe three years ago. And he's still in it, and so I, I don't know the details, but I'm just bringing that up to say that it's definitely happening. Yeah. And you- m- my first experience with it was was right after I got my doctorate too, and I I changed my Instagram. To, you know dr reese right why wouldn't you why wouldn't you why not i did too <laughs> and this beautiful woman slipped into my dms one day and she's like oh you know i'd love to get to know you and this that and the other she was from texas and she was like i'll fly out there let's have a date and i'm like who? this is this is um not normal <laughs> and and she told me that she's polynamorous I had to look it up. I didn't even know what it was. Yeah, I knew what polygamy was,
1: right? But there but is a difference. <laughs>
0: there is a difference. and I had to look it up. And then of course, I'm asking questions. And she's like, Yeah, I'm dating someone right now. And she's like, uh, I'm looking for, you know, like my, my number two, or, or my B or whatever she, term she used. Yeah. And I'm like, what? what? <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> it It is mind blowing. We We call it most of the professionals I know who work in this field, we think of it as it's the, it's the thing you can't unknow. It Once the glass shatters and you're, you're made aware that this is a way that people are relating out there, it can break a lot of the ideas that you take to be just givens, just granted, for granted. Like if somebody approaches me for dating, then they want to get on that relationship escalator with me. But in fact, that's not necessarily the case. Now, on the other hand, you know, it's still, it's worth noting that it's still possible to cheat when you're polyamorous because the cheating, remember, is about lying, which you said right up front, like cheating's about lying. So people have to be really willing to, again, stay in integrity and name. So I like that this woman told you, hey, I'm looking for my second. I'm looking for a secondary. While not everybody wants that relationship hierarchy, naming it, if that's what you're available for, naming it, saying, this is what I'm looking for. I'm not available for, in this case, I would probably say she was going to tell you she wasn't available for primary partnership. Totally cool. So long as you know about it, but let's say somebody doesn't tell you that, or they don't tell you that they're polyamorous. Now you find yourself, you know, deeply having, having big feelings for someone, you don't know those details. That sucks for everybody involved. It's all about the honesty.
0: Yeah. So your husband mm-hmm. knows that you're on dating apps and you know that he's on dating apps. Yeah. So there's no confusion.
1: There's no confusion. We're linked. Our our, our profiles are linked because we, we choose to have them linked. Not everybody does, but you can actually click through to his profile from mine.
0: So your dates know the deal.
1: Yeah, they know the deal. Thank goodness. I mean, it's just so much to explain. I also have seven kids. So like, oh, wow. I'm like, you know, you, like... If you're not going to accept my full life, if you don't understand, which doesn't mean they need to be involved. I mean, I can date very casually, which is fine, but I like for people to know me and me is, you know, I'm a business owner. I am a psychologist. I'm also married. I'm a mom. I I like to put those things right out front and say, this is me. You know, my my research specialty is jealousy. I like to tell people that because obviously I don't want to be mansplained about jealousy. Yeah.
0: And you have to be on the same page, otherwise jealousy is is gonna creep in.
1: Yep. No and doubt. the thing is, jealousy is gonna show up no matter what. You know, I've studied jealousy for over a decade now. Jealousy is normal. It's it's gonna show up for almost everyone. And even if it is even if you're a low jealousy person, the feeling of jealousy is nothing more than the fear that you'll lose your connection to a beloved other. I don't know anybody who doesn't experience that, in at least in some pang somewhere. I have not met anyone who truly has never felt it. And I've done a hundreds of interviews with people. There are low jealousy people. Full communication does tend to keep jealousy more at bay. But the thing is, we don't need jealousy to go away to enjoy this life. We just need to learn how to work with it. Just like anger. We don't need anger to go away, but boy, we better have te- tools for dealing with it. Mm.
0: So so you and your husband have an understanding and this is what we call an open relationship. Yep. So you you'll go out on a date, a literal date like to dinner yes, or
1: Dinner. Yep. I was out 3 nights ago. I was at dinner at a local restaurant. Yes.
0: And so so what do you do? You just tell your husband, "All right, I'm going on a date tomorrow night, so I won't be
1: home." Yep, exactly. So um, Google Calendar is really helpful. You know, we have a shared calendar. Um, so, cause it's just a lot to keep track of and it's not just the dating, it's the rest of your life that you live together. So I like sharing a calendar with someone. Um, but most of my partners, I don't share calendars with, so it's exactly like any other dating situation when you're in that stage where you're still very separate. Now he needs to know when I'm going to be gone because there might be something to do around the house. Um, we share finances and we share a household. We share children rearing, child rearing responsibilities.
0: He's your partner.
1: He's my partner and sharing and communicating about what I'm doing for pleasure for me is part of that partnership and, and the same listening, hearing what he's doing for pleasure. In other words, hearing when he's going out on a date, hearing when he's excited about it, hearing who he's looking forward to meeting. Those are exciting things for me because I, I fostered compersion as much as I can. Compersion is, you know, the feeling of joy for another person's joy, sort of the opposite of jealousy, but not mutually exclusive. Sometimes I'm jealous and compersive.
0: <laughs> Can competitiveness creep in? Because let let's just say your husband goes out on a date, mm-hmm. and and he comes back, and you find out this this woman that he went out with blew his mind. Like it yep. was unbelievable. Yep. Now do you try and step your game up to like?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I I find myself actually. I think I'm in any. Anybody who's seen the show Friends will relate to this. I think I have my, um, my Chandler moment when if he says that she's really, really funny, that's, that's, when, I, that's when I fall out of bed and I'm really nervous. I, yeah, I, I, I don't get too competitive about looks or about sexual prowess or any of that. But oh, man, I like being the funny one in the room.
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: that said, you know, I don't think we've been at this a long time. Um, In this particular relationship, this configuration, 13 years now. So do I step up my game? Yeah, I'm sure I have unconscious behaviors that absolutely are that coming up. But what usually happens is I lean in. So wherever there had been a bit of leaning out and maybe a, a bit of boredom creeping in, often this will re-spark that little bit of, oh, right, this is a person I really care about. Because that's what jealousy is for. Jealousy's purpose is to reconnect you to some your beloved, right? So as soon as I feel that jealousy, because competitiveness is nothing more than a piece of jealousy. So if, if I feel it, it rises up. My job is to use my prefrontal cortex to override my primal instinct to fight flight, freeze, or fawn, and instead move toward, ask for what I need, to tell him how much I care about him, to shower him with compliments that are genuine, and to ask for reassurance if I need it. It's not really that complicated. It's not that easy, but it's not that complicated either.
0: Um, we've only been on this call for 20 minutes, and it's it's, all, it's, it's already packed. <laughs>
1: It's a lot of it's a lot to assimilate when we are soaked in the monogamous paradigm our whole life we've marinated in it. Just introducing the idea, it's a lot.
0: I never thought monogamy was natural. I mean, out of the animals, isn't like penguins one of the only ones that are
1: there? So monogamy in the zoological sense, um, you know, technically would mean paired for life. But humans don't do that. We pair in a serial monogamous way at best, you know, one at a time until we break up with someone. Um, So it's rare for someone to be monogamous in a truly zoological sense. And when it comes to the animals, what we know is, yeah, there's such a thing as pair bonding and there's multiplicity, just like there are multiple ways to partner. We're animals. We have instincts and desires. And humans are creative even if that weren't true Mm -hmm. we are incredibly creative we figured out how to have a space shuttle yeah we could figure out how to have two partners at the same time sure
0: so now that the digital age is here in full swing digital world order (laughs) (laughs) this can all come out because because of the app game right like the apps have opened it up wide open right
1: Yeah, it changed things because so the the modern movement of polyamory, the modern movement of open relating, you could date it back to, say, the 60s, like the the sort of common version that we're talking about right now, the 1960s, the summer of love, right? Like You've got this, this free love idea. And for those first few decades, you've got people who are in their local communities just trying to signal each other, right? Just like, how do you find out who's game and who's not? How do you figure out who will swing with you and who won't? It's a much more um, undercover. There's lots of signaling. And then we have the internet and then we have apps. And yeah, it changes everything. I mean, on my particular profile, it just says I'm non-monogamous, I'm pansexual. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I'm available. It just says it. It's a very different game. And post pandemic time, Honestly, so many people are dipping their toes in the water that it's, um, yeah, the apps really have blown things wide open. Yeah. And distance. I mean, like you said, people will find you from Texas or from wherever. And I date one of my long-term partners lives in California. Another one lives in Texas and I don't see them very frequently, but doesn't matter. You just, you see them when you see them.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's an, it's a night, it's a practical idea to be bonded with someone as your life partner, but s- still interested, but still having fun out and about, it keeps it spicy. It keep, you know, it, it's like, instead of eating the same thing every day, you get variety in your diet.
1: So that's one way to think about it. And I think that is how a lot of people think about it. They think about a sort of primary partnership that is their life partnership and they build a life around that. Other people really, truly feel like that model does not work for them. They want multiplicity in a a really creative way. They want to make a life that has either multiple partners that nobody lives together, or they want to have multiple adults living and raising a family together, or they want to have multiple relationships that ebb and flow over time without hierarchies. There are so many ways to do this. Um, So that idea of primary partnership is it natural? It's one of the natural ways to go about it. Is it the only way? Nope. But mm-hmm. we will almost never hear about the really, truly lovely, happy polyamorous families because they're not in our therapy rooms. They're not on our, our uh, talk shows on TV. They're not, you know, they're, they're not blowing up. They're not slapping each other on Oscar floors. They're... <laughs> so <laughs> the happy ones just live. So there might be a lot more variety to the way people actually imagine these things into being, and it's changing all the time. 13 years ago when I started, primary partnership was sort of the only thing that anybody talked to me about. But now relationship anarchy is really much more commonly talked about and really creating exactly the scenario you want without and trying to really allow yourself to set down that idea that there has to be a hierarchy. And that works for a lot of people. Yeah. But you got to blow your mind open.
0: When you met your husband, you guys knew the deal right away or you morphed into it?
1: We were both married to other people. Um, My partner wanted out when I decided I I wanted a multiple person relationship. And his partner invited me into their relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, So we lived all together for two and a half years. And when they got divorced and finished, I didn't expect that I would necessarily stay with my person. Right. I didn't think that this would be this. This life person. But another couple of years went by and it became very obvious that I wanted to build that child rearing life with him. So yeah, we've always been, though we have dipped our toe back into monogamy. We took a year after we got engaged and tried monogamy out and found that it just didn't work for us. It just wasn't aligned philosophically. So we could practically, we could pull it off in a practical sense. Like, okay, I'm not gonna sleep with anybody else. I'm not gonna go on other dates, but it just didn't make any sense to us. And in part, because both of us are pansexual. So it it really started to get confusing when I would go hang out with a girlfriend who was a straight girl, who I wasn't, who wasn't going to have sex with me. We were just going to go hang out. But what was the difference between that? And when I would go hang out with a girl who I might possibly, it, it started to become this tangle that we were like, what are we doing? We're trying to limit, are we trying to limit each other's sexual access or are we trying to limit each other's friendship intimacy and it got really confusing so we we decided that monogamy wasn't for us because it was actually just too confusing
0: so what what's pansexual mean
1: pansexual means that um so my husband and I both were born into um cisgender bodies so we we aligned basically with the genital ass- assignment that we had when we were when we were born. So I'm a woman, he's a man, though he is experiencing his gender as fluid these days. Pansexual is our orientation. So that's our gender. Our orientation, each of us experiences attraction without any attachment to the gender of the person. So people typically will say bisexual, like I'm att- attracted to guys or girls. Um, both of us have found that we're actually attracted to people who are non-binary as well, trans people. It just just doesn't matter. Um, Both of us have found that we are both not just romantically, but also sexually attracted to people based on really their souls, their their personalities. Hmm. So gender just doesn't really weigh into it.
0: Okay. So you're not the average doctor.
1: (laughs) I'm not. That's true.
0: I'm not, I'm not either, but I'm, you know, nutrients and, you know, muscles and bones, but you're somewhere else where, (laughs) what, what's your clientele look like? What do they come to you for?
1: Yeah. So my clients are people who are used to getting what they want in life. (laughs) And when they want more um, out of their love life, often they are people who have already built a business. They've built a life. They're, you know, practicing at a high level. So I have a lot of doctors, lawyers, actors, CEOs, people like that, who then say, okay, I've heard about non-monogamy. I want to make that leap, but I've got a lot to lose. I don't want to screw this all up. The sooner they come to me, (laughs) the better off we are, because people often will jump in the deep end of the pool and they don't take a really careful look at how to do this well. So I like to work with people when they're transitioning from a monogamous identity, a monogamous paradigm, into a polyamorous or non-monogamous or open one. And during that transition, we figure out what's your version of this going to be? And if perchance your current partner and you find that you are not aligned, then we work on how how do we consciously uncouple from this so that you can do that well? rather than just burn it all to the ground because you wanna have sex with other people. So it's Mm -hmm. a very intentional process. And these people are, they're people who are used to putting intention into their life, but they often don't feel safe to talk about this even with their therapists um, or their doctors because it is outside the norm. And a lot of times they're afraid to be public about this because they're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of how it will impact their larger life.
0: What's the one thing that ignites a sex life?
1: Ah, yeah. It's just one conversation. If I could have everyone in the world who happens to have a partner that they can have a conversation with tonight, have a conversation, it would be this. Ask your partner, what is sex? And ask yourself, what is sex? Do this in a way that lets you each really reflect on, like, how do I know when sex has started? How do I know when I'm having sex? How do I know when sex is done? What are the actions of sex? I've taught sex educators, counselors, therapists for years, and I've gotten rooms full of people together. And I ask them, define sex. What is sex? You can have hundreds of people in a room and not turn up two identical definitions. That's great. Sex really is a personal thing. If you want to ignite your sex life, find out what your partner thinks sex is. Find out what you think sex is and then move into those activities, move into that the language around it with gusto. Like really go for it. Most of the time we've settled for something that w- was just what the culture presented to us. It's two bodies rubbing together in this particular way. Sex is so much bigger than that.
0: Yeah. And so... what when you're doing the the multiple partner thing how does sex fall into that are you on i mean obviously uh, i'd have to assume there's a rule for condoms and things of this nature because you don't want to pass yeah. anything around right
1: absolutely you know it's interesting the number of uh, the numbers tell us the data tells us that people who are Openly, consciously negotiating their non-monogamy are practicing safer sex more, much more than people who are cheating. So, <laughs> just from a sheer numbers perspective, it's easier if you can be honest with everyone. Um, most of the really practical advice I give as a certified sex educator is that. You need a regular testing schedule. Also, you need a you need a backup plan for if a condom breaks or if somebody doesn't follow through on their agreements, you need a backup plan. How are you going to handle that? You wanna negotiate that all while everything's calm, cool, and collected. So you wanna set some, I don't, they are rules, but you could also just think of them as agreements. I like to use the word agreements because you're agreeing to a thing. Sometimes people break their agreements. So then you need to have an agreement about what will happen. What are the consequences if an agreement is broken? And one of the keys to having a really generative set of agreements around safety and sexual health is to put in line the steps that will happen. And then remember that there's nothing dirty about getting a sexually transmitted infection. They happen. So do colds. So does (laughs) COVID. Stuff happens, right? (laughs) Like we, we can get an infection. And then we seek help for it. So if we destigmatize that while also saying, hey, and you know, cough into your elbow, please. <laughs> <laughs> your condom is coughing into your proverbial elbow. Use it. It's there for a reason.
0: It's actually one of the few things the medical system can cure.
1: Right, exactly. There's a <laughs> lot of stuff that they can do. And and today, you know, if for instance, if you're if you're having certain sexual activities as part of your routine, get on prep. You know, if you're a man who has sex with men, get on prep. It's, it's great. It does the trick. It, we have figured out how to manage much of sexual health, but you got to ask your doctor. You got to be willing to say, hey, just because it says I'm married there doesn't mean I'm monogamous. I love telling my gynecologist that. They've been great about it. They're like, oh, you're not monogamous. Okay, great. You want a panel? Great. Do it. They're, they're practical. They're pretty practical people.
0: Are you, how would you say, what would you say the main difference is mentally between intercourse and oral sex?
1: Oh, that's a great question. You know, meaning is where I would put all of that. Any type of sexual activity is only, it only has the meaning we give it, we assign it. So for some people, Um, penis and vagina intercourse, you know, very that, like that it carries a lot of meaning. Uh, Some of that's because it can result in impregnate impregnation, right? Mm -hmm. So some of that meaning is from that, but some of the meaning is just what we've been taught, what we've been told it means the whole concept of virginity, the idea that there even is such a thing as virginity, for instance, starts adding weight and meaning to it. But if you just think about it from a basic idea of like, penetration, if you're talking about an orifice that's being penetrated by something or you're talking about genitals being pushed together, there is no difference that is objective. There's only the difference that you make of it. There's only the meaning that you make of it. But a lot of times we don't give ourselves the chance to reflect on what does this mean to me? Am I, is this just orgasm seeking behavior? And if so, does my partner know that this is just orgasm seeking behavior? And if so, are they okay with that? Or should I just masturbate? Cause that's fine too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard anyone say orgasm seeking behavior.
1: Oh yeah. So that's how Kinsey, um, Alfred Kinsey described sex. That was his definition of sex was orgasm seeking behavior. Now I wouldn't define sex that way. I would make a much bigger picture of, um, actually my husband's definition is my favorite. Um, It's the overlap of two or more people's erotic stories.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's, it's a huge, it's a very broad picture. But Kinsey, who was you know, one of our early um, initiators of modern sex research, thought about the orgasm as a real, like, a real um, turning point in whether something was sex or not. I, but there are lots of people out there who don't have orgasms or who don't care about them or who are practicing orgasm um, suppression. They're not participating in them, but they might still be having sex. Like, there are so many ways to do this.
0: To me, orgasm is very meditative.
1: Mm, right. Okay. So meditative, the whole process from start to finish from like a route, early arousal right through to the end? No,
0: not, not, the, not the get in there part. Okay. But the actual orgasm and let's just say the five minutes after it's very...
1: Okay. So for you... Yeah. So if you think about the Masters and Johnson chart, where they, they show when you're, you're, you're responding to erotic stimuli, right? And you start going up that roller coaster, click, 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 click. But you reach a spot where we all do, where the orgasm becomes inevitable, right? That's probably the moment when you, you tip over the top of that. Whoop. Okay. Now you couldn't stop even if you tried. Yeah. And then right through the period where you are coming back to homeostasis, that that refraction period, that like that time for you, you I hear you describing as meditative. For me, that period of time is reverie. I feel a very outward burst. And it feels like reverie, or so not so much an inward and quiet, but. Um, I feel connection to something divine and something very big, very like universe size, big. Um, Mm -hmm. And everybody's different. Every I've witnessed a lot of orgasms and they definitely look different.
0: Yeah. I've, I've always told clients and, you know, when I'm doing seminars or whatever, and when, when nature comes up, you know, Mm -hmm. I like to tell people that, you know, there's four, things that happen to a human that are very very much nature and it's crying it's laughing it's sneezing and it's orgasm and this is what connects us to the divine is these four things because there's something very pure about all three sneezing like orgasm similar once you cross that point
1: then there's nothing to do. You just surrender.
0: You surrender to the sneeze. But
1: for people with clitorises, I mean, orgasm can be elusive. It can be, it's often shrouded in mystery for many people. I've met many people, many women who have not been exposed to the ways, the myriad ways that there are to learn to have an orgasm. Or they've been told that men should give them orgasms, which is simply the most bizarre idea I, I think I've ever heard in my life. Um, it's your body. It's it's yours to give you. <laughs> Someone else may facilitate. <laughs> Great. Um, but so there's a, I think that idea that it's like a sneeze is, it's true in one sense. And then in another, I think there is a real, um, tenderness that many people have to, they have to surrender really early in the process because they have to surrender to to eroticism, right? The long, Mm. slow buildup is normal. The average time it takes a woman is 25 minutes, 25 minutes. We got to be patient with ourselves. So when you said meditative, Being in this woman's body over here, I was thinking, oh yeah, sure. The the beginning stages for me are incredibly meditative. I'm I'm being present to my body, I'm allowing myself to drop in, I'm allowing myself to find the right positions, the right breathing pattern to allow me to feel present. So that part is all is. And then I tip over and I feel like I'm in reverie and I I feel too far gone to feel meditative. So just the differences in our bodies and then what we the meaning we make out of it is. Is really profound, and I, I think that's really one of the beauty points about being a human.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we can definitely get tantric with it, right? We can right turn right. it into a whole. I mean, my Osho used to talk about this a lot. You know yeah. that sex is one big meditation. It's it's it, it can be very very special, it, right. but it, the person doesn't have to be special to you. It could be a random person if you wanted to you could i mean i'm sure you've heard the term strange right get some strange yeah
1: yeah it's if you if you feel erotically engaged the relationships i love relationships i mean i spend my whole my whole career is built on relationships and relational individuation but sex sex can be anything you want it to be. I mean, yeah. I'm down for sex as sport as long as you know what you're doing and you and you like play the sport well. <laughs> <laughs> if you but if you if you want to have an erotic experience, yeah, that's yours to have. You the idea of that it has to be meaningful to everyone involved, well so that that's your that's your rule, your game. But what I would say is consent isn't just about touching. It is about touching but it's also about what does this mean? I like co-creating meaning with my partners. And that requires us to have conversations beforehand about what are we doing this for? What feelings are we trying to achieve? Because when there's asymmetry there, when one person is seeing sex as moving toward relationship escalator and love and the whole kit and caboodle, and the other is seeing this as orgasm seeking behavior or seeing this as tantric meditation, collaborating on finding some common ground is important. If you want to be in integrity.
0: Mm. There is something exciting about meeting a stranger for sure. And then, you know, there's some flirting and it just keeps building and you have this feeling of, I may never see this person ever again.
1: Right. But there is a, there's a key step in there that I think a lot of people miss when they want some strange, (laughs) um, you still got to have the awkward conversation about when you were last tested and how you're going to be protective of your sexual health. Mm-hmm. You got to have that conversation. There is no excuse in any situation for wow. not having that conversation.
0: Wow. So how do you bring that up?
1: <laughs> it's, okay, I got it. Here it is. It's super, super easy. Um, really, really, really simple. When's the last time you were tested? I was tested two weeks ago. Here are my results. You pull up the app that your practitioner already has. Everybody's practitioners have apps, and you get tested every three months or six months or two months or whatever you have decided with your practitioner is the right rate for you. So you say you offer your results and you ask them for theirs, and if they won't share them, don't have sex with them.
0: Mm.
1: Nice and simple. Interesting. We, we just have to destigmatize the idea that that this is that this is somehow too personal to share. You're talking about sharing something so intimate, whether it's emotionally intimate, physically intimate, or you're just going to enter that meditative state of reverie together. Maybe you're going to go get some orgasm on for that five minutes. Don't you want to be in a space where you have felt safe enough to say to somebody, Hey, do you currently have anything that I should be aware of? Here's a good one. If somebody discloses to me that they have herpes, I'm like, cool. Do you have any symptoms? That's all I need to know. I will still have sex with them. There's nothing wrong. They have herpes. That's okay. I just need to know, do you have any symptoms? Are you having an outbreak? If you are, cool. Can we meet again in three weeks? When you're not having an outbreak, give me a call. We have ways, we know how to deal with this. But when people use words like I'm clean, you are adding to the stigma. Mm -hmm. Let's just stop it. Just stop it. It's not worth dehumanizing someone. It's not. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This is stuff you don't hear every day.
1: (laughs) I do, but I swim in this circle all day long. Right. I made my whole life talking about sex for a reason because I love talking about sex. (laughs) And the more you do, the more you have these conversations. So the first time you're in an elevator with someone and you say to them, so, I was last tested three months ago. All of my tests were clear. I can show you on this app. Here's the pick. The first time you do it, your hands are probably going to sweat a little bit. Your voice might shake. You might even want to preface it with, this is a kind of an uncomfortable conversation, but it's one that I really feel committed to having. The hundredth time you have this conversation is just no big deal. You just is, say it.
0: Is, it. is it covered by insurance to get tested that much?
1: Yeah. So you know it depends on what your insurance is, but there are lots of solutions um, my insurance, I have a pretty, you know, run-of-the-mill health insurance, and it covers my quarterly testing, no problem, my, because my practitioner orders it, because she knows I'm non-monogamous, no big deal. So it's just an ordered standard, standing panel. Um, some people don't have insurance that covers it. We even have STI checks by mail at this point. There are kits you can send away for, and they run between $150 and $250. So I think of that as an investment in my health and in my erotic pleasure. So- Yeah. Lots of options.
0: Absolutely. Very interesting. I'm so used to checking the nutrients and the CRP and the cholesterol.
1: (laughs) Right, right. This is, and this is something that, so if you are in a field that deals with any intimate part of anyone's life, make sex part of the conversation. You know, so as a coach, I ask people regularly, when's the last time you had sex and how was it? Simple. Because then I invite the conversation. Most people think our practitioners don't want to hear about it. So we won't bring it up. My, my mother, um, when she was on dialysis for years before her death, um, I would be the one in the room who says, so, you know, is what the procedure that's happening right now, will it impact her sex life? And her doctors were usually like, okay, you're her daughter. Why are you asking that? Like, because this is what I do and I'm going to, but then they had an answer right behind there. They're, they're like, uh, they're, oh, oh, I'm being asked this was an answer. There are so many different things that can be going on with our bodies that do impact our sexual well-being, our sexual wellness and our access to pleasure. For instance, when, when it came to dialysis, you know, so she had vascular access. So wouldn't have been a good idea for her to do any rope play, right? Bad idea to cut off and constrict the, ve- the veins. Great. Good to know awesome. That's a simple conversation to have, but we make it a heavy conversation because it's about sex. So let's not, (laughs) let's just not.
0: So where can someone come find you and say hello?
1: Mm. If people are interested. So first, if you want to know if you're ready to open your relationship happily, go to com and you can take a quick quiz based on my research. It's J-O-L-I-Q-U-I-Z.com. And I based this quiz on my research so that people will know if you're not ready, I will not lie to you and say, you're ready. <laughs> it's okay not to be ready or even not to want it. And if you want to find me on Instagram, you can find me at Dr. Jolie underscore Hamilton, like a musical.
0: Last question. What are the top three books that influence you in your life?
1: Oh, goodness. In my whole life, Mm -hmm. um, can I choose Carl Jung's Collected Works as one book? (laughs) Yes. Okay, I'm going to take the whole Collected Works. I'm a depth psychologist, so I got to have my own. Um, Next, I would actually say Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. I would recommend it to every human being who has any interest in sex or considers themselves asexual and wants to know more about how sex works anyways. Um, And then the last one would, oh, goodness. I think it would have have to be my own journal because what I write what I put out into the world impacts me more than anything else and that's where it all begins is when I write down words
0: all right Dr. Hamilton thank you it's been a pleasure
1: thank you Dr. Reese (laughs) thanks for listening to inner peace with Dr. Reese
0: if this episode opened your heart Feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.